0: Welcome back to the Get and Grit Podcast. I am Brad Pohl, your host, and this is where we tell the stories of sinners and saints. It's not often these days that you meet a man of gargantuan stature, who's rubbed elbows with the leaders of nations and the popes of Rome. From his humble beginnings on the north side of Sioux Falls in South Dakota, Archbishop Thomas Gullickson was soon to be nuncio and papal ambassador to places like the Caribbean, Rwanda, Germany. Ukraine, and Switzerland. He never lost his passion to connect the church to his people. Archbishop Gullickson shares his journey in his personal Lenten story of burying the Alleluia.
1: When I first went to Rome as a seminarian in 1972, that was Pope Paul VI. And of course, relations and, and all those things were very different. The style has changed a lot over the years. By that time, you know, 72 to 76, you know, because Paul VI died in 78, he was getting to be pretty frail. So I have recollections of Paul VI. After my ordination as a priest, I was home here in Sioux Falls for five years. During that time, there was a request from the Holy See, from the, the Secretary of State, that I be released for diplomatic service. So I went back to Rome in 1981 for four more years of graduate school. When I came back, of course, it was John Paul II. I got to know him over the years. Uh, he was a, a typical a Polish tease. You know, he'd tease you over different things and make, try to throw you off balance, but in a very lovable fatherly or grandfatherly kind of way. Uh, I knew Pope Benedict even better because of my over eight years in Germany and other contacts that I'd had with him. And so anytime I saw him, you know, we already had an understanding. And so we cut, cut to the chase right away in terms of whatever it was that we had to talk about. Very much venerated and respected him. Um, Pope Francis, of course, I've known him too. He doesn't quite understand me, but that's all right. We'll forgive him for that. And then I started diplomatic service in 1985. And so basically, since 81, I've been I've been gone from home and been traveling the world. From 85, when I went to Kigali, Rwanda, uh, until I was named Nuncio for the, the Caribbean in 2004, I was kind of gaining experience in, in different places. And and all that kind of stuff, and allowing them to look at me and see whether or not they could risk investing that kind of responsibility. So they did. I was ordained a bishop also. Then as a nuncio, as an archbishop, as a papal diplomat, as an ambassador to the Holy Father, I spent six years in the Caribbean. I had what was called the Antilles Episcopal Conference, which is more water than it is people. It's a huge Bermuda Triangle extending from Bermuda to Cayman all the way down to French Guiana with 12 sovereign nations, British, Dutch, and French territories, and so on. I, After I had done six years there, and I basically spent my time there, besides helping the Holy Father to name bishops when needed, kind of informing him on the life of the church in that part of the world, in those countries. But then I spent... Um, Four years in Ukraine after after the Caribbean, and that was uh, that was 2011 into well till 2015, and that was right when Putin made his first advances and took over Crimea and started invading the east of Ukraine. So it was a very very interesting time, and those were very very good people. And I was the Pope's representative there, and I did as best I could, but I didn't really have. Rome didn't see it quite the way I did. The Russian secret service didn't see it that way at all. So after four years there, I turned in my resignation, but they offered me Switzerland, and I said yes. And so I went to to be the nuncio for five years in Switzerland and Liechtenstein. And part of the nice thing about that is, is one of my sisters is married to a man from Switzerland. So for the first time in my adult life, I was within an hour and a half of a blood relative. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, When I hit 70... 2020, I retired and I came home here to Sioux Falls and helping out as best I can. Bishop gave me the parish in Salem for six months because he was changing pastors there. And then last year, I was at St. Lambert's for the first three months of the year uh, while Father Haggerty was on sabbatical. Now this year, I'm filling in at Holy Spirit because Father Mason is is on sick leave for a couple months. Anyway, I'm enjoying getting to know the people at uh, at, at Holy Spirit as well. Basically speaking, you know, I've gone from being, a, you know, kind of a, a sort of an important person in a lot of places to, uh, to being, you know, one of the family here. And I love it very much. I asked the
0: Archbishop if he would share a story about the saying, we are the Easter people and Alleluia is our song.
1: Let us just say that it reminded me of my youth and young adulthood in the late 1960s and well through the 1970s. When as seminarians and young priests, many of us would roll our eyes at what back then were felt banner slogans like, we are the Easter people and alleluia is our song. It was at best adolescent bias, our part, uh, concerning a statement which was absolutely true and solidly rooted in our tradition. This year, at age 72, for the very first time in my life, I had the joy of participating in a prayer service generally described all over the world as burying the Alleluia. I took part in the monk's ceremony on the Saturday afternoon before Septuagesima Sunday, which is the beginning of pre-Lent in the old liturgical calendar. This was at the Benedictine monastery in Norcia, Italy, where I had gone to make my retreat. For the burial, the monks had carefully prepared a piece of parchment with the word Alleluia written big on it and placed it on the high altar. They had dug a shallow grave outdoors at the edge of the parking lot. Just like at a funeral, Father Prior blessed the placard with holy water and incense, and then we all processed out of, out of church. Father Pryor carried the placard, and behind the processional cross and candles, we all went singing to the place of burial where the placard was once again blessed together with the grave, with holy water and incense, and then shoveled in. Um, We returned to church in silence. The ceremony, maybe not exactly in this form, dates back to the Middle Ages in France for sure, where young clerics in religious houses, altar boys of the monastery schools and cathedral schools of their day did the same, sometimes even carrying, carrying a coffin. Uh, carrying the Alleluia to its grave in in the church courtyard in a little coffin, regardless of the ritual form that the burial, it always involved singing the Alleluia, really singing it to death. And that was kind of the sense of it, singing the Alleluia over and over and over again until they got to whatever wherever the place of burial or or to the conclusion of the ceremony was, and knowing that then no one would more would hear. The Alleluia song until the priest or the bishop at the appropriate moment in the Easter Vigil, as solemn as our liturgy can be and should be. There's also to our praying and living life in the church and in its, uh, in its worship. There is a playful aspect to it. As we were going back to the church, there were some families with children who had come assisted assist at the ceremony at the monastery there in Northside. And I just said to, to the little kids, I think it was a couple of little girls, I said, can you figure it out? 72 years old, and this is the first time I've ever been at the burial of an Alleluia. I guess uh, by way of a comment, it It sort of underlines the importance of that song, of that word, for us as Catholics in terms of its significance. And doing something or deciding that for at least 40 days we're gonna deprive ourselves of that is really quite something. It was probably St. Gregory the Great who extended its use in Rome to all Sundays except those of Lent. One of the privileges that I've had as a priest is to hear people's confessions and witness their coming to share in Christ's victory over sin and death. Once again, this Lent, I could share the rising from the tomb of COVID panic, and that is a tomb of many people terrorized and locked out of their churches, but by something uh, which every day we see clearer as a faithless reaction to the unknown. We lost a lot of people to the practice of the faith over the lockdowns, but for every return, theirs is a joyous hallelujah to be sung in the bright light of the Easter day. Yes, we are an Easter people and Alleluia is our song.
0: As Paul told the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. The acclamation of the word Alleluia is man's most ancient expression of devotion, the true believer's primitive credo, primitive doxology. The playful act of burring the Alleluia during Lent enriches our sense of discipline as we anticipate Easter. It's a kind of fasting, letting the Alleluia lie dormant before the burst of joyful affirmation of the resurrection. When we proclaim with loud voices, Alleluia, He is risen, He is risen indeed. Ain't it so? This is getting Grit signing off. Happy Easter to you all. Dominus for Biscum.